morning, everybody. It's September 11th, 2021. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz. It's This Week in XR. We've got a great show for you today. Kevin Kelly, founding editor of Wired, author, uh, and a great philosopher about both technology and the human condition will be joining us uh, for a chat. Uh, the news this week, a rather thin, not that nothing happened, but of course, Facebook has sucked all the air out of the room again with the launch of its Luxottica uh, Ray-Ban branded uh, smart glasses. Uh, some call them AR smart glasses. That would be generous because there is no display, um, but it is filled with all sorts of bells and whistles that we've come to expect from audio smart glasses, the likes of which we've seen from Bose and Amazon. Uh, and I own a pair of them and, and you know, I probably wear one, wear them this morning when I take my dogs for walks. So they're not nothing, um, but they are expensive if you have a prescription. Um, but they're certainly growing in popularity and Facebook wanted to throw their hat in the wearable ring. Uh, so here we go with uh, Facebook AR. Right. Um, yeah. And I think this is one of those natural evolution points, which I think uh, when we get to our interview with Kevin, I think we're going to talk a lot about some really interesting topics. He's a very interesting guy oh, yeah. that has deep, deep thoughts about this stuff. So I'm excited to get to that. But you're right about the, uh, the, the Ray-Ban uh, Facebook announcement. Uh, just like you, I use my Bose um, frames uh, on an almost daily basis because I love the fact that I don't have to have anything physically in my ears and they work quite well. Um, this is sort of a, a, like a, a blended combination of that and a little bit of what the snap spectacles were. There's your Bose glasses, right? Yeah, they, um, I mean, they look kind of like regular. Yeah. The advantage about the Ray-Bans is that they are extraordinarily light and extraordinarily nimble. And for those that are wearing them that, are, that you know, have the press, the ability to, to talk about it in the press, the Verge guys, you and others, they feel exactly like regular glasses, which is sort of the point of, there's technology in there. There's two cameras that take pictures and can do video recordings and there's audio and video and you, know, you, can, you can use them as essentially headphones. But the form factor dynamic of they start to feel like something you'd wear and not just wear for five or 10 minutes, they start to feel like something you'd really wear is this natural evolution to when we get that visual component right, that next wave of spatial compute starts to become extraordinarily real for a much larger group of people than just the early adopters and, and enthusiasts. So I think it's an important step forward, even though it doesn't have the visual part yet. Yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see how, how long they hang around. I don't think you know. Snap spectacles are still kind of a footnote, mm -hmm. um, and and let's see what happens with these. They certainly Facebook is very good at at making noise. Yeah, uh, and and they emit continual noise. Uh, and I don't know if that's a sign of uh, too much PR doing too many things at once or them being the most productive company in the world? I think it's a little <laughs> bit of both. I think, I think the fact that they are making progress and not just you know toiling away in the lab and not releasing stuff, they're toiling away in the lab and then putting things out there that they think are going to be relevant to people. You know, I was a big fan of what they did with the, with the portal and the concept of that ultra wide camera that can track people in a room, but it just never caught on, right? In some cases, they may be actually too fast and they forget yeah. how to deliver the story on something because they're mm. constantly pushing the envelope. Um, so it may lead to other companies finding that right cadence of things, right? To, to deliver. So it's an interesting right. thing. 
let's let's take the airtime away from Facebook and turn it toward Kevin Kelly. Um, Kevin is a man after our own hearts because he is not only a futurist, but a pastist. Absolutely. Kevin Kelly, welcome. Kevin is the founding editor of Wired and one of their um, featured contributors. Um, he is a great mentor to many and a friend to all. He's written seven books, Kevin, um, and, uh, and is now working on a, a large scale uh, photography project, uh, which, which I'm anxious to hear more about. Um, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So, so we just, as, as we were in pre-roll, we started to talk about the photography book. Uh, so let's just go with that. Mm. Yeah, um, I did, uh, for 50 years, I've been photographing remote parts of Asia and the disappearing cultures. And that's between Turkey and Japan and Siberia in the North and Indonesia in the South, 35 countries. And um, I put them together into a paper book, very, retro um which weighs 26 pounds and has a thousand eighty pages and has nine thousand of my best images of these of stuff that is basically disappearing very fast and um it's kind of cornucopia of design ideas uh alternative ways of doing things like clothing and costume um how you might arrange your house in the old ways and it's kind of like a time machine um looking back in, in a time when um, people made everything themselves basically by hand. Um, and so um, I did a Kickstarter to fund the book and getting it printed. Um, and I'm just wrapping up the last um, bits of it, which is the book is so heavy and so big, it needs to have its own shipping box from the, right. from the factory. And they're just not used to um something so heavy because each time we try it drop tests and stuff it gets damaged so i'm working with um, package designers to try to make um something that works and i finally um, got the help of nathan merval who's another macy's <laughs> incredibly huge books uh the same kind of like, like this one is and uh, he's been helpful in designing a package that works so that's where i am and i'm very excited by this is called vanishing asia and um it's uh a it's a, it celebrates differences and otherness, other ways of doing things. And, and my little wrap on that is just to finish is that in this very super hyper-connected world, um, wealth and beauty are generated by thinking differently. And as we are more and more connected, it gets more and more difficult to think differently. And I see this book and kind of travel to these remote places as, as a device in a way to help think differently, to have, to have different ideas about how to do things and what has been done in the past. And so um, this for me is, is, is useful as a prompt to, to think different. And that's um, how I would present it. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the super heavy book scenario because and and then you tie that uh maybe unexpectedly to the to the tagline think differently because the other super heavy book that i've got you might know where this is going that came to me in a very special shipping container was the iconic book which is all the apple um hardware the, the sort of history of steve jobs johnny ives and it was so heavy and so big that it had to come it was a gift and it had to come in this special 
delivery system where you like right. had three boxes and you had to open it up to get to the big box. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm aware of that. And then the other thing is for a, a, a pretty long period of time in my uh, working life, I traveled tremendously around Asia. Uh, so China, Japan, Korea, uh, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, um, and Thailand and other places, and got deeper and deeper into the culture, as obviously you did. And my discoveries were about food, people, and imagery, right? And, and, and that living that life, you get a very interesting sense of the first blush of a culture and then the real culture beneath it. So it sounds like you're on that journey, showing that to the world, what your experiences were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Asia is the future. I'm, I'm married to a Chinese. My kids are bilingual. Um, most of my livelihood in the past decade has been giving talks about the future in Asia. Um, and uh, it's very, very clear, just in terms of the arithmetic, just in terms of sheer numbers, you know, between... <laughs> China and India alone, um, there's uh, 10 times the number of people in the US. And so um, uh, it's, it's almost no matter what happens, no matter what the politics are, this is the momentum of the people hustling there is going to move forward and they're going to continue to rise. And so the future, uh, I think less and less what the United States thinks about the future it doesn't really matter that much. It's really as what they're thinking about the future that's really going to matter. Yeah. And so that's one reason why I go there is to hear about the future. But at the same time, the best way to understand the future, you kind of have to have a, a, a sense of the past because these things at the civilizational scale just operate at a different time scale and they take decades and maybe even a century to work out. So, so I go to the China, Asia to look not just at. So anyway, yeah, back from our power disruption. Um, what, what, I was saying, right, world what I was saying, right, is, what I was saying, right, as you broke off, Charlie, was that for folks like us and many others, uh, Wired has been such a, a you know a, a northern star for us in terms of how we build our universes right and I, maybe there's i distinctly remember the moment i picked one up and i looked at it and i looked at the design of it and the table of contents and i said oh my god yeah. finally there's a magazine for me yeah exactly yeah you know it was just it was so in the moment the um, the, the assignment that that the, the the kind of there's often you're making things you have a, a kind of a internal heuristics um, the, our internal heuristic was we wanted to make a magazine that felt like it was being mailed back from the future. <laughs> so we weren't going to explain everything. We were just going to say, here's, here's what it is, and you're going to have to keep, keep up a little bit. So, um, and, and so that worked. Um, so so that, that, that I like to try and, try and continue to do that is to um, pretend that we kind of know what's happening as a way of trying to discover what's happening. Yeah, it's still highly relevant to people like us. Extraordinarily yeah. relevant. Well, I think one of the things that was really a breakthrough with Wired, and, and in particular your work, Kevin, to put it plainly, is the humanism in it, right? We're not really talking about technology. We're talking about humans, and we're talking about the future of man. Right, exactly. We, we would say uh, Rolling Stone is really not talking about music. It's talking about the culture of music, and Wired is about the culture of technology. Yes, yeah. So that's what we're, that's what I'm interested. In. I'm interested in the culture that arises around technology because I, in writing my 
second to last book, uh, What Technology You Want, I realized that culture is a technology itself. Mm-hmm. It's something that we invented out of mm-hmm. our minds and things like calendars and laws are also inventions right. and they are, they, are, they are soft technology. And mm-hmm. so um, our, our you know, etiquette, all these things, even ethics are things that we invented. And so they are extensions of, of technology and they're as technological in a certain sense. So we need to pay as much attention because you can invent all kinds of things, but no one's gonna use it. Why? Because there's, there's other things, other technologies, soft ones that we've invented that will make a difference. So, so there's a question I've always wanted to ask you, Kevin. Um, you, you've been writing about this for 50 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, are are you surprised at the way things have turned out? Yes, yes. Um, and uh, I'm surprised at several levels. One is um, uh, at, at a basic level. I think one of the one of the hallmarks of reality is that it's going to be surprising. Is it's improbable, right? Every single creature, every single species on this planet is improbable. Our own lives are improbable. And the more improbable they are, the more authentic. Okay? So, 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 so everybody has some mix, some unique mix of things. And if you're just trying to imitate someone else's life, you're not going to arrive at where you really should be arriving. You should be arriving somewhere that's for you, unique for you, and that's going to be improbable. So, so, so yes. I'm surprised because reality is going to be surprising. Um, the second thing, the second way I'm surprised is because lots of things that I expected didn't happen and things that I did, I, I did expect to happen did not. And so um, that's surprising as well. Um, so there, there are certain things that I was not surprised by. Um, and um, there are certain things I would be very surprised by if they didn't happen in the future. Um, but there's going to be plenty that, that will surprise me. Ted, same question, same question for you, by the way, Ted. Are you well, I was gonna, I was going to ask Kevin, uh, hone in on that a little bit. Over the last year, over the last, let's call it now, close to two years of the pandemic, what would say are your two or three biggest surprises that kind of bubbled up into your universe and went, wow, I didn't expect that. That's an Well, at, at the very least, um, Chris Anderson and I had discussions two years ago, I guess, you know, or January, when COVID very, the first reports came, we were both skeptical that this would, that it would grow. I mean, so, so the first surprise was that it, it turned into the scale that it did. Yeah. Because initially it was like SARS. It was like, well, how, you know, how, how many people is this really going to affect? So, so, so that was, so fundamentally, yes, I'm shocked that it reached the level that it did. Yeah. I think we would be in agreement with that. I remember uh, watching all the events that I was supposed to go out and, you know, be a speaker in the real world. South by Southwest was that first one that I was like, there's no way they're canceling South. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. 600,000 people go. And then, of course, that was the first domino. And then after that, they all started to fall. And it was like, wow, the world is changing right. very dramatically. Right. So, so, so in that sense, I was wrong about my initial predictions about how far that would go. The, the second one was, um, uh, I would say, the, the, you know, the politicalization, the anti-vax thing. Um, 
surprise me because um, it it kind of exceeded what, what's the word? What you know? There was a there were there, there was there was a resident anti-vax movement all along. It has always been, um, which was very mixed. It was kind of some new agers. It was it was not very political in that sense. Yeah. And so the way that it became kind of a political badge was 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 a complete surprise to me. Um, and it, it could have gone either way. And it has you know, I mean, we can see it in other countries of the world most of the places haven't gone the way the U.S. has in terms of its of its signaling and its symbolism. Um, so so that, that's been a, that was something I would not have predicted. I, I worked with uh, Salesforce and a bunch of other Deloitte. We did a bunch of scenarios at the very, very beginning to kind of uh, imagine what all the different scenarios could be. And the whole purpose of doing scenarios is not really to predict the future but it's to not be surprised by it, <laughs> right? And so because I did those scenarios, a lot of what's happened since is not surprising. And because we thought, well, that could have happened because we went through all the possible things that could have happened, including these rebounded things and, and all these other um, uh, effects of the biological aspect of it. But you know, there are still social things that, that would not expect it, like, this, like the, the degree of the anti-vax thing has, was something that we did not cons did, did not think of uh, in in the very first scenarios we did way back. Um, yeah, I think it's because uh, there's there's an innate sort of illogical sense to it. So people that have yeah. logic in their brains, regardless of their concerns or their worries about something, you're just basically you know putting two things on a scale, right? And you're saying, well, one has been sort of proven that it works, and there's very low incidence of anything. That, that right. is dangerous happening. And the other is proven that if you don't do it, your incidence of being in a very dangerous situation are much higher, right? So it's kind of like wearing a safety belt in a car. Like you understand that there's a very small percentage of people that wear a safety belt and something bad happens and you yeah. can't get the safety belt off, but it's a teeny little percentage, right? Whereas wearing the safety belt or having the airbags, yeah, sometimes an airbag goes off and it burns you, right? Because it goes off incorrectly, very small percentage. But the overwhelming percentage of it helps you save your life and others around you. And therefore, that is kind of how I think most people viewed the vaccine. But there's a, a sector of people that just completely go the other way. And that was very, I think, surprising yeah. to me as well. Yeah. It's so interesting, um, interesting topic. so uh, we're going to move this conversation to the metaverse. Um, We'd like to, if you're OK with oh, that. Yeah. It is the topic du jour. Yeah. OK. Um, uh, there's so much to say about it. Where, where do you want to begin? Well, I was the first thing I'll say about the metaverse is, haven't we been talking about this the whole time? I sort of yes. feel like a bunch of people walked in the middle of the conversation and say, said, what are you guys talking about anyway? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, and then there's been, uh, you know, all sorts of ways to claim it and spin it and plaster it on everything. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 fine. I, I think. I mean, it's like you want to have this conversation now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, what it is is there was some sense that this was the name that you want to call it. Um, naming is important, and and uh, that's something we've learned at Wired. And so um, this is an attempt to try and you know give it a name and another boost. And I, I don't, you know, it'll come back. We'll 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 have another round of this where. Um, Remember cyberspace. 
cyberspace, yeah, you know, and the World VR. Wide Web, right? <laughs> You're connected, exactly. But but I, I think um, I think there are some things happening now that are making clear to me. So 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 I've had my son is like a lot of young people. He's doing NFT art, right? He's doing art and NFTs and stuff. And I think there is, uh, I think there is something in this convergence of the XR world, the VR, the augmented reality world, and games and crypto. That 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 the three of them, I feel, are converging into something. Um, so so. You know, you, I, I've been talking, and as well as you have, about the kind of the augmented reality world, the um, VR and AR and XR and all that, and that's slowly going forward. But there's the gaming world, which um, has never ceased and continued to to expand. Mm-hmm. And then there's this crypto fringe. There are a bunch of true believers who who see this as a remedy for all kinds of things. It's not really clear um, how it works. I mean, socially works. Um, but, but, but I feel, I feel as if um, it, it does feel like there's that the three of them could converge in a way that is very, very important. Yeah. I and, think you, you mentioned that convergence, right. And, and as we yeah. think backwards to look forwards, there's always sort of those three pieces, right? And you mentioned that crypto is sort of the wild card or blockchain is the wild card here. You know, and, and here's the other two with the, the gaming world and the sort of web interconnected world. Mm-hmm. And we can go backwards and find those three moments in time at a moment when sort of, you know, the CompuServe chat rooms were sort of in existence and AOL right. started to happen. And we can look at Netflix as a moment where that's sort of part of what the metaverse did from an entertainment standpoint. There's always these three pieces that sort of come together and there's one little oddball that becomes like the fire starter, right? The third piece of the puzzle. So it's interesting. Sure, yeah. Your I perspective mean, is that. And, and in, in the terms of the internet, that was the web. I mean, right. the, the, the thing about the, the internet was bulletin boards and all that kind of stuff. We could see it coming. It wasn't, it was off to the side. It just wasn't work. And when the World Wide Web came along and became visual, it was like, aha, that is, that's the ignition. That is what everybody could kind of identify. And then it just took off. It was ignited and it just exploded. And I think we're not quite there yet with this, this things that we're talking about this world. But I, but, but I, I feel as if perhaps the convergence of games and blockchain crypto inside of them or whatever running the ownership issues have that potential to to produce something that might ignite it right agree and i think there are parts that are definitely there as if you mentioned if we look at roblox or fortnite or minecraft or you know the world of grand theft auto is pieces and parts that are both creatively successful and economically successful look at Pokemon Go, creatively successful, massively economic successful. Those other two pieces are starting to gel. The NFT side, the the, the blockchain and tokenization side, the spatial sense of it gelling up, just like the web gelled up after the other pieces started to show their power, right? Right. So before you knew it, everybody had to have a website. Yeah. I think where crypto can come in is 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 this um, the issue of um, I mean the, the beauty of the web 
was that anybody could make the website. You can make your own website and put it up. And, and that was, that was what made the web. It wasn't that AOL and all these big companies were going to make all the websites, although they believed that they were going to do it, <laughs> but it turned out that no, everybody in their bedroom is going to do it. And that was the beauty of it. So right now with um, kind of a, a metaverse world, uh, a, 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 a shared uh, consensual um, virtual world is that it's, Doing that has been, um, diff it's still difficult. It's still difficult to, to, to actually generate that content. Um, and uh, the, the economics of it are, are, are not clear. It's how, how that would work. But if you could use crypto to some way distribute that ownership so that someone who spent a lot of time making something, and it's not necessarily like a world, they may be making an artifact or something that can spread in the world, and if they could retain some kind of credit or get some income for that and have it as it spreads through the world, then, then, then you have this huge amount of energy and effort into making the world and to making it because everybody could, I'm making my version of it and I'm not going to rely on Facebook and others to make it. We, we're going to make it in a decentralized way in the way that the web was. And so crypto has the potential to maybe figure out how you could be creating this in a very decentralized distributed way um, and you know taking care of the ip and taking care of all the other issues you would have in a decentralized world of how do you prevent spam how do you authenticate and authorize that this version should be there and so um so, so, so I think the kind of the crypto bros that are out there making all this stuff. And I, I think the thing about crypto is that it's completely uh, distorted by the amount of money being made. The thing you always want to ask about the NFTs is, well, would anybody buy these if their value went down? Mm -hmm. Like most things. And everything else in the world, if you purchase it, it's going to decrease in value over time. That's the natural state. So including art, most art does not increase in value. And so um, if NFTs did not increase in values, would they be useful? And there are some parts of them that would be. And I think that's... How so? How so? Well, because the idea of um, that if I resell something, um, some of that um, resale should go back to the original um, creator. Oh, I see. That's a, that's that's an incredibly mm. powerful mm -hmm. uh, right. mechanism. Right. If if you have a world in which you're making things and they spread, and each time something is sold or passed on or used, you as a creator get some little kind of credit. Mm -hmm. That is big. So 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 that's that's built in, and and that's part of one of the kind of options you have for most of these NFTs is that kind of future sale. And so, um, uh, I think things like that. Are worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Lots to lots to talk about. We could probably go on for hours, right, Charlie? But <laughs> and we do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 end our short chat together on on a high note, Kevin. When we set up this uh, uh, set up your um, your talk with us, we talked a, a little bit about optimism. Yeah. Right. So, uh, are you optimistic about the future? Is this all going to turn out okay? Yes, I'm, I'm more optimistic about the future than I've ever been. And um, 
my optimism comes mostly from the past, from history, from the data. So I have an evidence-based <laughs> optimism. And the evidence-based optimism is if you look at the world rationally, squarely, impartially, um, progress is real. Uh, I was just watching a, a history thing on, on um, Netflix about, um, you know, the Romans. And, and you know, it, it's like we are so lucky to be alive today um and and the things that we don't have to experience so, so a lot about what we should be optimistic about is all the things that did not happen to us in our lives today that's true the fact that uh you know you know that a, the, a 12 year old did not die of 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 covid um you know or that we weren't robbed on our way to uh, right. away from home or of all our surplus so right. so there's there's tons of human things. History, human history teaches us that life was uncomfortable uh, yeah. and often you didn't have enough to eat and you were cold or, it, and and or was, wet. Yeah. So I would say we've come a long way. What, what was the philosopher who said life was uh, nasty, brutish, and right, short? Right. It was short. It was the average age until, uh, until science was 35. Yeah. Okay. So none of us would be, we'd be here. Um, so, so I'm I'm very optimistic um, um, about uh, the future, and I think we actually have a moral obligation to be as optimistic as we possibly can, because um, w the world that we want is complicated to, to have a to have a world that really works and serves us, and as a as a world that we want to live in, um, and uh, to to do that requires us to kind of imagine it first. We, we, we actually have to try to imagine the world that we want in detail um, because it's in, it, it's very, it's, oh, it's impossible that we're gonna make that world inadvertently. I think we largely agree with that thesis. I think that the three of us here would say, you know, we are optimists by nature. We see that most things are designed for the good of humanity and the things that go down the dark roads tend to be edge cases. They can be right. very, very bubbled up and represented now because right. of what we do with technology and how aware we are of right, right. the dangers of humanity. But for the most part, I think both myself and Charlie largely agree with that theory, that, yeah. that technology is an optimistic progress. Science is an optimistic progress that leads us to better right. places as humans, as a, as a human race and a human culture. I think we agree. Right. And, and in the long term, it's the optimists who are going to design the future. Right. That's so a great way to, to. That's a great button. The optimist right. designed the future. Right. Exactly. So so so. I mean, it, it's kind of like the the world is like a car, um, where you have um, uh, you you have pessimists who are the brakes, and you have the optimists who are the engines. But you need brakes to steer. Okay. So, but you just don't want to let the brakes take over. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's really good. All right. Because you want you want to drive forward, but we absolutely need people to say stop right here. Okay. So 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 so. But but um, it's important that the optimists are driving forward. And so um, uh, the other thing the optimists um, uh, embrace are problems. Right. Solving. Problems. I believe that problems propel progress. No problems, no progress. Problems are actually 
literally propel us because they identify new opportunities. Okay. And so we can, as optimists, we can embrace problems because those are new ways of doing things that we hadn't thought about before. Yeah, they're going to force us new ways to do things and move forward. And so, um, uh, so yes, there's plenty of problems in the world, but I'm a protopian, not a utopian. And protopia is about the fact that um, if we can create even 1% more than we destroy every year, we can compound that 1% to make civilization. So when we look around, yeah, 49% of the world may be crap, may be terrible. And that 1% difference is hardly even visible except in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, so yes, you're right. You, you, there are lists of things that you have, that you have about how the world is wrong. It's, is correct. But in the protopian world, we only need 1% more. That's better to feel, to, to be optimistic. That actually does make me feel optimistic. <laughs> Thank you so much for starting off my weekend the right way. Me too. <laughs> we forget sometimes oh, man. How, how far we've gone and how much we've created and how how much humanity has done in such a short time, you know, over the last hundred years that is remarkable yeah. in so it many is. ways. So. It is. We, we have to face up to progress. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to end, uh, end the show with an anecdote about you, Kevin. The first time we met, I said... Kevin Kelly, oh my God, I worship you. I imitate you. And he goes, I know. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't remember that. I don't know what I would mean by that. But Well, we would call that flattery. I would okay. call it flattery. Uh, anyway, Kevin, great to see you. Thanks yeah, for coming great, on yeah, the show. And, You're uh, welcome. Glad to be here. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.